Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Morning, church. Good to see all of you this morning. So thankful to be finishing up the uh, series we've been doing for the last several years, actually, in the book of Romans. We've been taking it in bites, but we're we're coming to the close. And I, I, this is one of the most you know, wonderful books of the whole Bible. A lot of doctrine, a lot of uh, just really a powerful teaching in this piece of Scripture. But in this last chapter where we are now, we're going to take on some very, I'll say, very abstract kind of passages that some... Uh, I would say even many pastors would, would perhaps just do all of 16 and just kind of talk to you about the benediction and move forward. For whatever reason, I'm not going to do that. Um, in fact, this piece, some of you were with us a couple of years ago in the book of Nehemiah when I preached what was called the unpreachable passage, and it did almost kill me. There was like a hundred Old Testament names in there, uh, but we, uh, I think, enjoyed that. This one's not quite like that, but it's close. This is an interesting thing. I've called this one greetings and commendations. It's the idea here of what does it look like to be a church that's truly in love with one another and truly approachable and actually has real family. Uh, This is the idea of these 16 verses to begin Romans 16. And many would gloss over this and, and, and read it certainly, but then preach the benediction because this is kind of tricky. Some may argue this one's almost unpreachable too, but I really, as I... Dug in this week, me and my father, as we were studying, we saw really some some key elements that were continuous throughout that I think are really important, really important for us to unpack together. And to be fair, I I think we've kind of gotten out of the habit of what it looks like to be very invitational. Uh, Certainly out of the habit of just being cordial. You know, the South used to be known for that, to be a very cordial. Everybody sat on their front porches. Everybody's drinking sweet tea or lemonade and saying hi to all their neighbors. That season seems to have passed. People, uh, most people go right into their, we all have these big garages and stuff like that. And, and I get that, you know, that's nice. Stay out of the rain, all that kind of stuff. But the front porch atmosphere is kind of over. Not that it should be, but it's the nature of where we are right now. And so... What does it look like to be the kind of church that yet again gets into the habit of being invitational? Being the kind of church that greets. That when we see each other in the grocery store, we're actually like, hey, brother, hey, sister, so good to see you, rather than going, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe who's on aisle six. Oh no. And God bless me. Like, uh, if I ever am that way, there, there, there are people that I admit, I'm like, oh, I just saw, I think who I just saw, and I'm like, going to avoid that. Shame on me for that. And, and that's, not, that's not the kind of church, certainly of the first century, and not the kind of church that now Paul is commending. Now, you may think you know how to really greet people, and I've noticed, I've observed something. People are getting out of the habit of really knowing how to greet. <laughs> really knowing how to just have a normal conversation. People have gotten strange. Maybe it's COVID, but I'm not sure that's enough. I think we were already on the way to some weird behavior. I've noticed it certainly in my children, okay? And so y'all, y'all probably have noticed this too. And those teens in the room, you're probably guilty of this. Like it's a, a young person doesn't have a natural tendency to look you in the eyes when they communicate. They, or they don't have a natural tendency to say things that actually make a lot of sense. All right? They, they'll, they'll say things that they think are funny and they haven't figured out really what's funny yet. Some kids are naturally funny. My third is accidentally funny a lot. All right? She's just a humorous person, but my firstborn wants to be funny, but he doesn't understand the cues. I hope he gets them. I think I remember vaguely being there. Like, I've always wanted to make people smile. I've always been kind of an entertainer at heart. If I wasn't doing this, I think I'd be doing like Comedy Central or something. I don't know. I I loved that stuff growing up. And I understand that behavior, but trying to teach a young person to simply look them in the eyes and say, how are you? Hello. Hello. It's not that hard. Just common greetings that I've noticed some people never grow out of. You, You ever run into people that have a hard time looking you in the eyes in conversation? Doesn't that unnerve you a little bit? Like, it makes you wonder if they're lying, even in their howdy in their howdies and their how you doing. It's like, I don't think you really want to talk to me. <laughs> like, and we're trying to teach this to our children. Do you know how to do it? 
I find that oftentimes people come up to me and they're like, Eeyore, and Winnie the Pooh, hi, you know. How are you? And my kids do this too sometimes. Do you know how to greet people? Some of us never really learn it. But if that's you today, or or you're just wanting to be a a part of a church that's truly edifying, is truly invitational, I hope that's why you're here. I hope you would want to be a a part of a church that truly welcomes others, that truly receives people, and knows how to deal with people regardless of their background, regardless of where they've come from, that knows how to say hello and mean it. That kind of church is kind of rare. Sadly, it is, but it shouldn't be. And it's the kind of church that Paul is speaking to here in the book of Romans. Romans 16, 1 through 16, we see Paul here closing his letter with some very affectionate greetings, personal commendations for the believers he knows are in Rome. Now, I admit something. He's not been to Rome yet, and he makes that pretty clear, in fact, in the last passage we were in. He's not been able to get there. He's been hindered, and he knows it was God who's holding him back for various reasons. But he's hoping to stop by on his way to Spain. He's got some big plans to go to the far reaches of the world with the gospel. That's what he believes God's got him up to. And so he's writing this letter of preparation, but also of remembrance of, like, I want the Roman church to know all of this stuff that I've been teaching, that I've received from the Holy Spirit of God. I want them to get it. And now he's passing it on. And he's making many commendations to who he knows are there. Because he's ready to see them. We can learn a lot about this, a lot about how to greet one another in the Lord. And I think the text gives us three. I think they're going to be pretty clear ways to greet one another in the Lord. Are y'all ready for a bunch of greetings? You're going to notice one word sticks out. It's the word greet. It's in here a bunch. Verse 1, chapter 16. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of King Cray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well greet Prisca and Aquila my fellow servants my fellow workers in in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks but also but but all of the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well greet also the church in their house greet my beloved Apenetus who Who was the first convert to Christ in Asia? Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ even before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Astribulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those, those workers in the Lord. Trophena and Tryphosa. Greet the, the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. He's funny in the mix. It's like, where'd the redneck come from in this list? But <laughs> Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord. Also his mother who has, be, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philagus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister. Greet Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another, in fact, with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. Amen. If nothing else, it was impressive that I got through those names, right? And what's really wonderful is each one of those persons matters to God. And those are names that are abstract to us, but boy, are they important in the the kingdom of God. They're in the holy book. Wow, I'd, I'd love to make the list. Greet one another in the Lord as family members loving one another in Christ. As family members loving one another in Christ. You're going to notice some terms that come to life in these 16 verses. You hear him call... His sister, Phoebe. Sister, you hear Andronicus and Junia called my kinsmen. That means my family, my blood relatives. He calls the mother of Rufus his own mother. She was like a mother to me. There's this family aspect to the kingdom of God. That something happens, and I hope you've experienced it, that something happens in the the Christian church that's 
even better than your family. No matter how wonderful your family is or how dysfunctional and broken your family is, what you should be experiencing in the family of God is true family. That's more than blood. It's, it's, the, the blood, in fact, is in the Holy Spirit in, in Christ Jesus, and that sets us apart and makes us different. That we can call each other brothers and sisters. And that some of you and some of the people in my past have been fathers to me and mothers to me and grandparents to me that weren't blood, but they meant just as much, if not more. Mentors and disciples. As family members loving one another in Christ, this is the point of some of this commendation. And he speaks first of Phoebe, a name that means bright and radiant, and a name that actually we kind of know still. Among the lists, it's like, okay, that one. I knew a couple of those. Phoebe sticks out, and she's very important in the letter. Only mentioned here in Romans 16, verse 1. I couldn't find her anywhere else in this text or in all of Scripture, but a great commendation is given for her here in these first couple of verses. She's a faithful servant. She's been most likely, and most commentators agree on this, she's probably been entrusted with the letter. That she's listed first in this commendation as a patron, as one who serves the church, as one who is dear to Paul, most likely the one who's carrying the letter. And many people think, when they, when they hear the word patron, they think she's probably been the kind of lady who has helped fund Paul's ministry whether financially or, or with hospitality. Maybe she housed him at times. She seems That word seems to indicate she's a benefactor in his ministry. She's extremely important. And most likely is carrying the letter now to the church of Rome, who Paul has not even met. A dangerous mission in a sense. She probably has some servants with her. Perhaps, I would argue, maybe it's possible some of the people he's commending and greeting here are coming with her. I don't know that for sure. Most, most agree that these are people that are already in Rome that he's greeting and, and happy to hear from and, and wanting them to hear from him. There's 27 names mentioned here. 27. And I spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out who these 27 people are. And you're thinking, wow, <laughs> that's what you're doing with your spare time. Um, yeah, I care really a whole lot about the Bible. I care so much about the Word of God, and I want so desperately for it to, to ring true to you every time I speak it. That I wouldn't gloss over something Paul seems, or the Holy Spirit makes important, that these people matter, and why do they matter? Well, one thing I would make a note here when it comes to the family of God is the sense, this wonderful sense of, of men and women working together here. This wonderful sense of that he would trust such an important letter to a lady named Phoebe. In a time, especially in a time where uh, women were often belittles, belittled and that, that, that this would be odd for this, this important task to be given to a lady. And it, it's really ironic to me because in modern days you'll often hear people call Paul a misogynist and label him such and say, you know, he's this and that and there's no way that these pieces of Scripture are true. And yet when we look at the 27 names, almost half of them are women that he's so proud of and commending and saying, look at the roles and the hard work they're doing. Look at how faithful they've been to the Holy Spirit of God. And in fact, I'm sending one of my favorites to you to bring this letter. I'd say it's the polar opposite. What I see in the ministry of Paul is something that I, I don't even know if I attain all the time in the church of Christ. That, that there's such equality in the work. And that the people really believe in it. That they're faithful and they're working hard. And I would say in a lot of senses, they're letting some of this secondary and tertiary, unimportant stuff doesn't seem to be applying to these people. They're working for the gospel. And to Phoebe, he says, I commend her, I celebrate her. I would even argue, in fact, Christianity is the greatest liberator of women in human history. That Christ Himself liberates all peoples. And it bothers me when I hear other lies because that's not what I see in Scripture and it's certainly not what I see in the church. He says she's a servant. The word there is diakonos. Now some have taken that word to mean she was a deacon in the church. I don't think that's necessarily the formal office of deacon there, but perhaps there's room. Perhaps there's room. Although I would say this wouldn't be the particular text I would use to expose that. I would say Romans 16, 1-16 is what it is, a commendation for people, a greeting towards people. And it was not Paul's 
point, I don't think, to make these doctrinal statements about the church. Otherwise, he would have said right off the bat, now, to church leadership this, and look at all of these women and their roles. No, he's commending them for what they're already doing. Perhaps I could go to 1 Timothy or some other places to talk about that. But regardless of where you fall on this, this kind of modern debate, this thing that you may have heard of, and I, I, I would encourage you, I, I, I don't want to be a part of a church that like says, ooh, these are dangerous topics. I'm scared of them doctrinal topics. No, I'm not scared of them. I will admit I'm not confident on any of these really uh, hard topics. That, that I would say, oh, it's definitely this, when it seems to me the Bible isn't that clear. Especially here. That this word diakonos could go either way. I would say it's not necessarily true for either side. What we know is she's very important. And she's carrying a letter. And perhaps there were other deaconesses in the early church, and that's not weird. These issues like egalitarian, this is the topic that's complementarian, egalitarian is the debate. And then there's, there's all these debates on eschatology. There's all these debates on uh, reformed theology. Like you've probably, Calvinism, Arminianism, there's all these like hot topics, right, in Christianity that most of you are like, I really have a full-time job. Like, and I care about Jesus and wow, what is all that? I have to care about that kind of stuff. And I have positions on a lot of these things, but I would say the Holy Spirit is constantly showing me and teaching me. I'm not done. And I'm certainly not Christ. <laughs> and so until we get to glory, I think all of us are going to find out there's bits and pieces that we got right and bits and pieces we weren't quite clear on. And to come down too hard on any of these would be a danger. You'll notice often in my ministry and the way I preach, I really do try to do a both-and approach. That I think there's room here in the text. She's called a patron. She's called a servant. And he says, welcome her, help her. Now this place, I only have one map today. I know some of y'all ain't into all that, but there's a map here of the Grecian area, like right in here in the Mediterranean. Kinkre is really close to Corinth, just so you know, so you're kind of getting a picture. This is the place where Phoebe has been a diakonos, has been a servant, has been an important person in the church and has been doing great ministry there. And now Paul sends her and he's asking the church of Rome, welcome her, for she is my sister and she is your sister. She is beloved. We are all members of God's family through Christ Jesus. <laughs> I'm about to do a membership class with some of you. There's going to be five in the class. Noah, it's exciting. You're going to be hanging out with two couples that could be your grandparents. It's exciting. And we're all going to learn something about each other together. And this is one of the main verses for our idea at all. Like some churches have gotten away from the whole idea of a membership class. The whole idea of having a membership role. But I find it somewhat important to know that I belong. To know that I'm a part of something. I find it important. In fact, Ephesians seems to argue that there's a point to being a, a part of the family. Ephesians 1 says God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do and it gave Him great pleasure. He wants us to belong. If some, this is a shameless plug. If you haven't been through that class with me yet, there's some really main points to it. And that is that I want to help you serve. That one of the big outcomes is that you would understand that you're a part and that we're a church that serves. We're a church that's on mission. That we don't have a, 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 a like an empty membership role or a, or a very full membership role, I should say, of people who actually never come <laughs> And actually never do much. That's not the kind of membership we have. In fact, every year we clean it out. Isn't that crazy? I know churches in town that have thousands of members and they haven't, those people haven't been there in a decade. We clean them out. And it's hard to do. I look through it and go, I do miss such and such. Sometimes it's a good opportunity. You know, I haven't seen them in a while. What happened there? Sometimes people slip through. We're a small church, but every once in a while I'm like, wow, where did that person run off to? And I'm not the most aware person in the world. Apologies. Um, other people are much better at that. My wife is better at that. She'll say, you know, Jonathan, I hadn't seen such and such in a while. Huh, how about that? So we go through there. We're a part of something. We're a serving church. We're the kind of church that's serious about our faith. Therefore, we are to love one another as a family. First Peter 2 says, respect everyone and love the family of believers. Love the family of believers. I've heard from some of you in the room, and I didn't want to call any of you out by name, but 
I've heard from church members both at our campus and at our Wilson campus say things like this. I don't have any family in this area, but even if I did, they wouldn't treat me as wonderfully as you have. Wouldn't treat me like family like you do now. Now, I'll admit we don't get this right all the time, but I wish we did. It's my goal that we, when you're hurting, that we would come and visit. When you're in need, that we would come and feed. That all of those things Christ Jesus talks about, we would be those things, the hand and feet to you, that your own family would miss, perhaps. Some of you have really blessed and wonderful families, but a lot of you, the church should be far more than that to you. That the real family, the brothers and sisters, the fathers and mothers, the sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, we treat each other like we're going to spend eternity together because we are. So we probably should start now making these things work. Because it's going to be kind of interesting up there when we see one another and go, hey, I couldn't stand you in earth. That's not going to work too well. That's not going to work out. Eternity seems like a long time to me. And in fact, it's a mind exploder for me. When I think about time, I'm like, I can't even fathom eternity. It hurts my brain. And I know I'm getting to spend every one of those days with you brothers and sisters. And I want to make things right now. That's part of why Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's now. Like the changes should be occurring in your heart here. That we would be the family of God now. And we would appreciate what Christ is doing in us. Here's the second. First, certainly family. Second is faithful servant. As faithful servants supporting one another in Christ. Faithful servants supporting one another in Christ. The word greet is in this 18 times. It's the idea, it's really the idea of a hug. It means to fold one's arms around, to enfold into one's arms. The King James makes a... uh, makes a decision here that I think is pretty cool. The King James, all of these are the same word for greet there. They're the same New Testament, the same Greek word. But in the the King James, if you have one, you'll notice for all the men, it says salute them. And for all the ladies, it says greet them. It's the same Greek word, but I think it was perhaps a way of saying when you, brothers, when you see each other, good to see you, buddy. Like, Now, he kind of throws this totally off at the very end when he says, all right, and then throw in the holy kiss thing. All right, we were good, like, hey, buddy. And then he threw the holy kiss towards us, and we're like, I don't know what to do with that yet. This idea of hugs, he says that for all of the ladies in the King James. Now, the verse, just so you know, the English is the same. There's a sense here, and we practice this somewhat. This may make you uncomfortable, in fact, at our church. I don't... If, if on your first time or in your first few times as you were walking in, you notice people hugging one another, that might have been like, something weird's going on in this place. We do a lot of that around here. I would say it somewhat honors the Word of God. You know who I hug every time I see Him? My mother and my father and my brother and my sister. Maybe that's weird to you. I think that's love. That's a part of who we are as a family. So why wouldn't I hug you, my brother and my sister, my mothers and my fathers that's the intention here of the word if it makes you uncomfortable then maybe salutes are in in your in your future but at some point we got to figure out this holy kiss thing out (laughs) maybe it's the holy fist bump are y'all good with that holy fist bumps holy hugs perhaps maybe i'll go that far i'll do one of those side ones i'll just come alongside you know the people that this is like this is what my son does a lot hey i love you dad although lately i think he's been missing me or something he's trying to get full-on hugs, and it's kind of weirding me out, but I'm going with it. <clears throat> he says, greet them and fold one's arms around. Receive joyfully is the intention here. This is, an, this is an imperative 18 times. Greet, greet, greet. This is really the main imperative of the whole text. As faithful servants, put your arms around each other in ministry. That means we're doing this together. We're alongside each other. We're, we're pathing together. He, he brings up Prisca and Aquila, and some of you Bible readers are like, whoa, 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 Prisca, who in the world is that? I know Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know this Prisca person. Is that a misprint? I've got good news, baby ducks. It's not. It's not. It's, it's good Greek. In fact, here's what I know is still true in the English. There's a lady over here named Elizabeth. Does anyone call you that? Some might, but most call you Izzy. My family... Just so you know, feel free to use this. doesn't bother me at all. I love it. My name is Jonathan. My family calls me Finney. Finney. 
Because my brother, when he was young, when I was young, couldn't pronounce Jonathan. He said Jonathan, which just became Finney over time. No one in my family calls me Jonathan. You want to call me Pastor Finney? I'm good with it. You know, there used to be a Pastor Charles Finney, and I'm pretty proud of that guy, so I'll take it. This is what's happening here. Prisca means venerable, and it's the formal name. That's her. That's like Elizabeth. That's her formal name. Priscilla was her informal name. Now to us, we're thinking Priscilla is pretty formal, but different times. So it's the same person. This is that same person we see mentioned six times in the New Testament. We first meet him in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So this is where he met them. And notice there's some really good details in that text. These are Roman citizens. These are people who had been in Rome. And likely they are back. Claudius has died. (laughs) This is really interesting stuff. Claudius, in fact, some of you history buffs in the room, around 54 AD, Claudius was poisoned most thing by his own wife. Uh, these are wonderful times, right? His favorite food apparently was mushrooms, and she poisoned a dish of mushrooms for him. And on came Nero, one of the worst emperors in human history, um, up there with some of the worst people you can think of. But Claudius had driven the Jews out, but now he's passed and they're returning. And that's what we think has occurred here. Priscilla and Aquila are now back in Rome. And so they're going to make the top of Paul's list. Phoebe first, as she's most likely bringing the letter. And then Priscilla and Aquila, man, I miss you guys. Good to hear from you. Good Good to be able to reach out to you. You guys risked your necks for me. What does that mean? Well, I think that means really literally here. This is a dangerous time to be a Christian. It's dangerous. Did you know it's dangerous to be a Christian in most of the rest of the world right now? The only thing we have that's dangerous here is it's not very comfortable to be a Christian. There's there's verbal persecution. Perhaps job progression might not go smoothly. There's a lot of things here that make being a Christian uncomfortable, but it ain't dangerous. Let's just be honest with ourselves about that. But in this time, extremely dangerous. And this event happens when Paul is with Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. This event happens where there's a great riot and a bunch of people get Paul out before they kill him. Some, many commentators think that was the moment when Priscilla and Aquila and perhaps others risked their necks to protect him. Risk their necks for him. Well, that's real family. There's not a lot of people, you have to admit this, there's not a lot of people you'd take a bullet for. There's not a lot of people that you'd really throw yourself in front of a train for. That's what they did for Paul is what he's arguing. They really put themselves out there for me. We might do that for family. Would you do it for your brothers and sisters in the faith? That shows something. That shows some real intent. And he he tells them now, look, guess what else? In verse 5, he says, now you're hosting a church. Perhaps this is where the letter's going. To the home church of Priscilla and Aquila. Remember the commendation of the Master to the faithful servant in Christ's parable of the talents. Matthew 25, he says, His Master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in the joy of your Master. This is what we're doing together, church. This is what it means to be the family of God. This is what it means to be fellow servants, fellow workers in the faith. That at the end, we're all on the same path, paralleling towards heaven and reaching people with the gospel. And that when we arrive, we would hear in unison, well done, good and faithful servant. And we build each other up for that very process, for that very progress, that we would get there together and hear those words. Nothing better could happen. That is the ultimate treasure. So be faithful with your God-given gifts, serving one another. 1 Peter 4 says, God has given each of you a gift from His great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Now I'll admit, for me personally, I've seen such a great deal of faithful service in our church over the years. Just outstanding things that people do to serve one another. I know personally for me as a teen, I can remember on one occasion, this came to my mind this week because, well, perhaps I'm just sentimental lately, I don't know, but I was thinking about when my grandmother 
had her first like major heart attack and how my dad had already gone up there. This was, I was a teenager at the time and he'd already gone there with my mother and they were with, with my nanny. And it looked like things weren't going to work out. It looked like she wasn't going to make it. And so uh, we were staying with church family, me, my brother and sister. And somebody drove us five plus hours up to the hospital in Bristol and stayed up there in case we needed to ride home. So I just took time off work, paid gas, drove a bunch of kids who were not their own up to Bristol, Virginia. I'll never forget that. That's the kind of thing that I've seen the church do when the church is right over and over again. That when we're faithfully serving one another, that looks like real family, like better even than real family. That we really serve each other. I've seen this again as an adult. I've seen it again and again that when people make the decision, I want to serve Christ and what that looks like for me is constantly serving each other. In order to greet one another as faithful servants, we actually... We actually have to be that. We actually have to be servants. If we're going to, hey, fellow worker in the faith, we actually have to be serving somewhere. In church, sure. In the community, are you a patron? I want to be a patron of the church. I want to hear that. And maybe I don't have a lot to give of this. That's not necessarily what Paul's talking about. This is a person who's willing to give much. Their time that they've made a decision that each and every one of us can make, and that is the kingdom of God is more important than anything else. In your heart, you know that's true. In your heart, you already know that the people around me, these people who are all, many of them far from God, the most important thing in my life is the kingdom of God being known to them. There's nothing more important that I could possibly be about than the gospel of Jesus Christ because if it means eternity, and I believe that, then there's nothing more important. Now we have to admit, oftentimes, a lot of things get in the way, and they do for me too, because I have people to feed. I have my mouth to feed. You know, There's a lot of things in the process of life that are important things. But if I've made it my priority, that the kingdom of God is most important, then it changes the way I do everything. It makes me a patron of the church, a patron saint of the church, if you will, with my time, that I'm not so selfish with my stuff, which is our natural bent. It's our natural tendency to hoard. And don't feel bad. Just know it's true. We're, we're in that together. We're with each other on that. Serve in time, talent, and treasure because there's nothing more important than eternity. Nothing. And maybe that's a good cold hard reminder today that that's what it looks like to be a faithful servant. Now this last, this last way is where all the names really showed up in this back half of the greeting. And you'll see the words workers, fellow workers again and again and again. That was the thing that began to really jump off the page in these last list of names. So as fellow workers enduring hardship together in Christ. This is what sets us apart. This is what makes us a family. This is what makes us the true church. This is the kind of reason I would say that in so many uniform type jobs or, or, or activities, that enduring hardship is like necess is a necessity. This is why growing up in, in football practice and two-a-days, it really was miserable. And I think that's on purpose. We all wear the same uniform. We all endure the same, we used to call this an army, embrace the suck. We do this together. We put our arms around each other so that what? We could be fellow workers enduring, enduring hardship together. Now, it's not that Christ wants to make life hard. Life is hard. Sin entered the world. And Christ has not returned. So guess what? Believer or non-believer alike, life is hard. The question then is, what is sets us apart as fellow workers in Christ? That we don't do it alone. We decide to go on mission together and face the storm as one. And this is what we see in sports. This is what I saw in the army. There is unnecessary mean stuff they do to you on purpose. It, it doesn't have to happen. They do it because you need it. And the reason you need it is because you're selfish. 
This is why the sports teams do it to you. This is why the army does this to you. This is why probably in law enforcement, probably in so many of these, even just a lot of your regular jobs, it's almost like they have to tear something down so that they can put truth in there. Because otherwise, otherwise you're broken. Even, even, even when I worked in pharmacy, you know what some of the worst hires we ever made in those six, seven years I worked there? People that were already working in pharmacies elsewhere. Because the first thing you get to do is untrain them so that you can retrain them. It'd be better to hire someone who'd never done it. So then you're just training. It was funny to find that out. And that's what so many of these things are. So in Christ Jesus, this is what's happening. We're enduring hardship. The question is, have we put on the same uniform together? Have we made a decision that, you know what, in Christ Jesus, we're better off together? That we can have this struggle as one. Paul says this again and again. Fellow workers who worked hard. Fellow prisoners. People who endured hardship together. He mentions Epanetus, who he's really proud of. I think the interpretation here of verse 5 is that this is maybe the first person that, that, that Paul led to Christ in Asia. That seems to be the indication. He says he's the first convert of Asia. He's like, man, I'm so, I'm so proud of that guy. I'm glad he's in Rome now. I hope he's doing well. He's one of the first people that came to Christ for me. He mentions Mary and a long list of ladies here who he, he speaks highly of as being hard working. He says Andronicus and Junia, those are cool names. Y'all can use those for your kids. They're open for, I don't, I don't know any Andronicuses, so you can go for that. It'd be a new one. He says they're his kinsmen. They're my, they're, they're my blood brothers and we were fellow prisoners. We're fellow prisoners together. Clement, one of the early church fathers, he cites that Paul was most likely imprisoned at least seven times that he knew of. Seven times Paul had been imprisoned. The Bible only, only describes three that, that we are aware of. But, but Clement is writing in the first, second century, so he probably would know how many times Paul had been imprisoned. It says of these people that they were imprisoned with Paul, and he commends them for that, that you, you suffered well with me. And also, you're well known by the apostles, it says. And in Christ, you in fact, you came to Jesus even before I did. That's the commendation. Then he gives you a list, all right? 9 through 11, that's that list of, man, you guys can use this, all right? Urbanus, it's open. All of these are open season for your children. They're all men, in fact. And they're odd. The Bible doesn't mention them in any other place other than right here. And so all of the research that I did this week on these people was all based in church tradition. And I have reason to believe that a lot of it is true. I don't fully write off. I know some of you might be hesitant and say, well, if it's non-biblical, I'm just not sure. Well, there is still good history that's not Bible. All right, So it's okay to look at the first century writers like Eusebius and some of these other people writing. Church history is most likely true. And so all six of these guys here from Urbanus to Narcissus are listed as six of the 70 disciples that are mentioned in, in the book of Luke where Jesus is speaking of the 70. That they're now here in Rome. And church history describes each of them. Urbanus is the bishop of Macedonia. Stachus, the bishop of Byzantium. Apuleius, the bishop of Heraclea. Arist Aristobulus is most likely the brother of the of, of the uh, Barnabas, the one you know of. Herodian is the bishop of Patras and Narcissus, which is a name you don't like, and there's a reason for that. And it's not his fault, alright? It's based on an early play, a Latin play, where the name Narcissus was used to describe a man who loved himself and his reflection, and that he got punished by the gods for it. It's a very not great play. Feel free to go read it. Have fun. Um, but the name now has got a bad connotation. It didn't at this time. So Narcissus here isn't that guy. He wasn't full of himself. In fact, he was the bishop of Athens. So, and he died a martyr's death. So let's not pick on him. He was a saint, a, a great man of the faith, as I hope many of us will be. Then we get right in the smack dab in the middle of that. We get Tryphana and Tryphosa. <laughs> which are most likely sisters, and their parents were rude. All right, let's... Tryphena and Tryphosa. Woohoo! Almost every commentator says these are probably sisters. They might even be twins. And they're listed as hardworking along with Mary and then Persis. And Persis is a weird name. It literally just means Persian woman. And this is amazing because <laughs> this is a Persian woman in Rome now receiving a letter from a Jew in Corinth. 
And now they've been bonded together by the gospel. It's like so beautiful in a way, if you'll think of it that way. And then in the middle of all that, we get Rufus, the the redneck who shows up out of nowhere and says he's chosen by God. He's elect. Most likely the Rufus described in Mark 15 as being the father of Simon of Cyrene. Many, many think that's true. And then we get another list. I'm moving quickly through these. these. It is important stuff, but there's not a whole lot there other than that these people were working together in some note. 14 through 15, we get these this next group of six guys. Or two, three, four, f- yeah. Six more guys that are considered another piece of those 70 apostles, 70 disciples described in Luke. And they are bishops of many places. And then Julia in verse 15, another woman in the mix, probably the wife of who said later, Nerus, and greet his sister. And then there's Olympus. Like, look at all of this wonderful commendation and greeting. And we kind of gloss over that. But these are heroes of the faith. These are heroes of the faith. And they've made the scriptures. Wonderful, wonderful. And what's said of them is their fellow workers. They're arm in arm. They're shoulder to shoulder. We should remember this exact same Christ-like commendation to the church in Ephesus. He says, Jesus says in the book of Revelation 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have detested those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them false, for you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Paul tells Timothy similarly. In 2 Timothy 4. You keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Endure hardship. I hope that's actually encouraging to you today. Not describing some reality you didn't know. If somehow you with rose-colored glasses think that life isn't hardship, I don't know where you're living. In fact, I'm not sure you've faced anything of real note yet. It's coming. There's a few things we can't avoid. No matter how much blessing is on your life, until Christ comes again, our bodies fail. They fall apart over time. And we start to see people... And we start to miss people. And heaven, I would argue, gets all the sweeter all the time. Because we start to go, there's a lot more people there that I want to see than are here. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting closer all the time. And so, it's not hard for me to to notice there's hardship. What is hard is who's with me? Who can I really depend on? Paul says, of these 27 people, these are people that are dependable. I commend them for that. That they would work hard in Christ and they would endure hardship. And they're not afraid of what the gospel might put, what situations that might put them in. Life is too temporary for us to be overly concerned about what the gospel will do for our influence or what it'll do for our, our, our status. I care a lot more about my status in Christ. And, and I wasn't always this way, but I'm getting more of that all the time. And I'm praying for you. And I think that's the point. One of the major points of this piece of the letter is that we would notice that these people cared about the gospel above everything else. They made it their priority and that's who we should be in Christ Jesus. A Christian should be nothing less. It's funny that the church has become full of people who are lukewarm believers. How did that happen? Because it's not the New Testament. It's not the first century. I would argue it's because it costs nothing to be a Christian. It doesn't cost anything. But it's coming. It's starting to cost something. And maybe that's for the good of us. That the wheat would be removed from the chaff. And we would start to go and look around the room and go, you know what, I actually know there's people in my own congregation that don't really know Christ yet. That would be helpful. I heard a pastor recently say that the hardest activity of any pastor at any church is to reach the Christians in their congregation. The so-called Christians, I might argue. That may be you today. Don't feel bad, my friend. Come to Jesus. Just like I have to do every single day. Noticing that I am enduring hardship, like it or not. Am I doing it for the glory of God? Or am I doing it and making a fool of myself? Just a few days ago, really, 
we were all running around in the rain out here, weren't we, together? A lot, right? Many of us. And as I was writing this piece of the sermon this week, I thought about many of you and thought about, you know, in the scheme of things, that wasn't really that hard. Although I was soaked to my core. And that pair of shoes isn't right, all right? I don't think they're coming back. I think those shoes are going to have to be put out as a lawn mowing shoes now, perhaps. But um, I was soaked down deep in my soul. And we were running around for trunk or treat. Some of you know that. That's what we did out here a few weeks ago. And you know what? It was really hard in this sense. We've had over 500 people come to this event in the last few years. You know how many came out that night? 169 that I counted. So it's like, wow, we just endured, we just, as I put it, embraced a lot of suck together for a third, if not less, of what we normally get. And it makes us all, and I couldn't help it in my own spirit to go home going, God, what was the point of that? That was a lot of work. It cost the church some money to put on stuff like that. We rented a light that didn't work. (laughs) What's going on, God? But I was reminded of it this week and thinking, you know what? It teaches us something when we do things like this together. It teaches us who is really passionate about the gospel regardless of the outcome. That things may not go exactly the way we thought they should go. We brought another church in and there's that piece of me that's like, well, that needed to be the one that was really perfect. Here we are trying to show off what we're doing with this other church. And it's like a, almost an epic failure. But it wasn't. We did it together. We got drenched with another church. They were soaked down deep in their souls too. It makes me go, okay, this is, I think, what Christ is trying to teach me. I don't know what He's trying to teach you, but would you, would you endure hard things again and again and let the outcomes be in my hands? Like Too often I'm trying to re- control the results. I can't control the results. And I don't know what that impacted, but I know what it's doing in me and perhaps what it's doing in a lot of our people that served. Maybe everything that we do that we think is evangelistic isn't just for that. Maybe it's for our own good and our own sanctification. Now, I am asking the Lord, can I be sanctified at some point in this? Like, do I have to continue to be crucified again and again? Well, I think until I die, He's not done. So there you go. I'm not holy, perfectly holy, so. Greet each other as fellow workers in Christ. Let's continue to endure hardship together. Let's do foolish things together for the gospel. Who cares if we stood in the rain? Who cares if we come up with crazy ideas? Some of you come up with wild ideas. We should try some of them. Throw spaghetti at the wall and see what happens. Endure hardship together and see what God will do. Because in the end, the kingdom of God is all that matters. Will you be family members, faithful servants, and fellow workers together in Christ Jesus? I'm praying for you. Let's pray together now as a body of believers. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are first and foremost our Father. That this idea of a family in Christ Jesus began with your words to us. That you've been calling yourself our Creator, our Sustainer, but more our Father for Centuries, if not millennia, millennia and countless times you've said in your word, you are our Father. You are our Savior. You are all these things to us. And you've started a family. And, and, and again and again in the New Testament, you remind us we are adopted into that family. That those of us who were, some of us felt like we were really far from you, but we were all far. And yet you adopted us in like the many prodigal sons and prodigal daughters that all of us are. You ran to us and brought faith into our house and received us as sons and daughters. I'm thankful to you, God, that that's who you are to us. That the reason we have church, the reason we gather together as Christians is because you first loved us and accepted us into your kingdom. I'm thankful for that, God. I just want to be a part of a church that takes that really seriously that truly believes we are brothers and sisters in the faith and that it matters the way we treat each other, that the way we welcome, the way we commend, the way we exhort one another, the way that we treat each other really, really matters. And I know that it's true because the outside world is watching and they're shocked when we hate each other. 
They despise the church. They can't get along. And rightfully so. Let us not be that church, God. I pray, God, would you protect us? I truly believe one of the evil one's greatest missions is first to destroy the family, the nuclear family, but then secondly to destroy the family of God. If he can break husbands and wives apart, he'll do that first. If he can break brothers and sisters in Christ apart, he will do that. His greatest mission is to destroy the family of God. And we let him right on in sometimes and have the most ridiculous arguments with each other and decide we'll never speak and decide we'll never be a part of one another's lives again because of some incident. That it is not what you've called us to. We are fellow workers, faithful servants, eternal vessels who will see each other forever. God, I pray you would heal us. Where there are broken relationships in this room, where people are sitting far apart right now, for a reason, God, you would restore them. I pray you would put a burden on those hearts that they would feel a sense of of reconciliation, the need for it in their life. And they wouldn't run from it any longer. If they walk out of here without an attempt at reconciliation today, God, that you wouldn't let them sleep the night. I know that's a hard prayer. But God, that's the church you've called us to be, that we would be faithful to each other and love each other the way you loved us. And it's ridiculous that you would forgive us so much, so much that we could never deal with, that we would be unable now to forgive one another of things that are sometimes heavy, but often petty. God, give forgiveness in our hearts. Help us to reconcile with one another. And would you do this miraculous thing that God, only you can do. Would you help this church and the many churches in town that honor you and glorify you, would you help us to be a symbol of your love that people would know, wow, those people at Eastgate Church, those people at those many churches in this city, they really care for each other. They take care of each other. They are one. And even when things are hard, they seem to stick together. People really want that. Would you do that in us? God, we love you. Make us a family. Help us to not be able to avoid each other any longer, but we would come to reconciliation. Do that in us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.